Hi, I'm Felicia, and you're listening to episode 85 of Five Song Set. Normally, I play new songs, or newish songs, mainly because I need to get permission from the artists. However, the other option I have is to play old music, really old music. And for some reason, I just felt like that's what I wanted to play in this episode. So we're going to hear five songs from the early 1900s about trains and train wrecks. Some of the most well-known train songs aren't in the public domain yet, so I'll put links in the show notes to where you can find them. Not surprisingly, there's a lot of songs about trains, and I kind of had a hard time choosing amongst them. I'll also put some links in the show notes to other great songs that are available for free download. We're going to start off with two instrumental pieces. The first is Choo Choo by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra. The recording is from 1930 and is one of the most modern ones you'll hear in this episode. Whiteman is actually a controversial figure, which is kind of surprising since it seems like everyone at the time liked him. Whiteman was either called by the media or called himself the king of jazz. However, a lot of modern critics don't think that he played real jazz, since there was no improvisation in his arrangements, and sometimes they were more classical or more like commercial dance music than like jazz at least according to some people. While I do like jazz and even play jazz badly for a few years, I don't think I'm in any position to comment on the opinions of music critics. What I can say is that Paul Whiteman pretty much started Bing Crosby's singing career. He's the one who commissioned George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. He hired virtually every well-known white jazz musician during the 1920s and 30s and paid more than anybody else. Because of segregation issues at the time, he was actively discouraged from hiring black musicians, but did work behind the scenes to give them work too. It sounds like by the mid-1930s, Whiteman's career was in decline. However, he really did make a mark on jazz music. If you want to hear more, check out the show notes, as someone has uploaded to archive.org almost all of Whiteman's recordings. Here is Choo Choo by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra. Thank you. 
That was Hiawatha by the Columbia Orchestra from about 1904. Here's some great background on the song by a commenter from archive.org. This tune by Charles N. Daniels, under the pseudonym of Neil Moret, was inspired by the sound of the train wheels as he rode to the town of Hiawatha, Kansas. It took several attempts before Daniels could convince John Philip Sousa, who had first played and popularized Daniels' march, Marjorie, to play the tune, because it was not ragtime, nor was it a march. Eventually, Sousa gave in and agreed to have his band play it once. Daniels later received a telegram from Sousa proclaiming this to be the biggest hit his band had ever played. Soon, everyone was playing it. The rhythmic bass line, given the title, ended up being mistaken for Native American drums, and soon other composers began writing Indian intermezzos. Daniels himself became a notable composer and publisher of this new musical fad, which lasted for several years, all because of the misunderstanding about Hiawatha. It even got made into a song version, played slower, about Hiawatha singing to Minnehaha. The slowing down at the end is marked in the original score. It suits the tune when you consider it's meant to represent a train pulling into the Hiawatha station. Next, we'll hear three songs about train wrecks, as I immediately thought of the wreck of the old 97 when I was working on this podcast. Why? Well, a very long time ago, back in episode 7, I played a song called Charlie on the MTA, which I definitely recommend if you haven't heard it. The song is based on an older tune, which was also used by the Wreck of the Old 97. In this version, the song is called The Wreck of the Old Southern 97, and it's sung and played by Ernest Thompson. According to the Blue Ridge Institute, the Old 97 was a mail train and consisted of four cars and locomotive number 1102. It crashed on September 27, 1903. Running behind schedule, engineer Joseph A. Brody was trying to make up time as his train approached Danville down a three-mile grade. He realized he did not have enough air pressure to slow the train for an upcoming curved trestle, and in vain he reversed the engine to lock the wheels. Old 97 vaulted off the trestle and 11 people were killed. Photographs taken from above the scene ran in newspapers across the country. Train wrecks occurred relatively frequently at the time, and it was the ballad which sustained this accident's national fame. The wreck of the old 97 was initially recorded commercially by Virginia musicians G.B. Grayson and Henry Whittier, but when it was released by light opera singer Vernon Dalhart, it became the first million-selling record in the United States. The wreck of the old 97 also produced the first major lawsuit involving copyright. In 1933, the courts ruled against the RCA Victor Company, stating that David D. George, a Pennsylvania, Virginia telegraph operator, who was at the accident scene, was the song's original author. George was awarded $65,000 on sales of 5 million records. RCA Victor appealed and tied up the case in court for so long that George never collected his award. In a technique common to the folk song tradition, George composed the ballad by adding new lyrics to the altered tune of an older song. As for the singer, a commenter on Archive.org tells us that Ernest Thompson was born in 1892. When he was a child, he was badly burned in a fire. It damaged his voice box, which is why he sings so oddly. Later, he was blinded while working in a sawmill. He was a street musician all his life and died in 1961. Here is The Wreck of the Old Southern 97 
sung by Ernest Thompson. But the joy in his heart he could not hide 
For the whole world was bright when she told him that night Tomorrow she'd be his blushing bride hummed a song as the train rolled along and the black smoke came pouring from the stack and the headlight of gleam seemed to brighten his dream of tomorrow when he'd be going back he sped round the hill and his brave heart stood still for a headlight was shining in his face and he whispered a prayer as he threw on the air, for he knew this would be his final race. found lying there on the ground and he asked them to raise his weary head as his breath slowly went this message he sent to the maiden who thought she would be wed there's a little white home that i bought for our own where i dreamed we'd be happy by and by and i'll leave it to you for I know you'll be true Till we meet at the Golden Gate Goodbye We just heard The Wreck of Number 9, played and sung by Vernon Dalhart. I'm a little confused about the facts relating to this song, as the album is listed as having been recorded on January 14, 1927. According to Wikipedia, it was written by Carl Robeson in 1927. I suppose both could be true. Wait, wait! I found the answer in a book called Long Steel Rail, the Railroad in America American Folk Song. The author, Norm Cohen, confirms that this is a fictional song, rather than one written about an actual train wreck, by Carson J. Robeson. He says, Robeson copyrighted the ballad on January 13, 1927. The following day, Vernon Dalhart recorded it for Columbia. Mystery solved. Anyway, Dalhart seems to have spent a great deal of his time recording songs about train wrecks. As noted previously, he recorded The Wreck of the Old 97 and did quite well. Wikipedia has some interesting tidbits about Dalhart. As with Whiteman, some purists don't feel that Dalhart is really a country music singer, since his training was classical, and others are skeptical of his accent even though he was born in Texas. However, after The Wreck of the Old 97 did so well, having The Prisoner's Song as the B-side, and now I'm quoting, it was the desire of the Victor Talking Machine Company to duplicate the sales success of Wreck slash Prisoner that led them to contract with Ralph S. Peer to go to the Southern Mountains in the summer of 1927 to facilitate the Bristol Sessions arguably the single most important recording event in the history of country music, where Jimmy Rogers and the original Carter family were discovered, and after which Pierre's royalty model, 
i.e. of paying based on sales, would become the standard for the entire recorded music industry. Cool. Now before we go, five songs that is recorded under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So you can share it, but not sell it or change it. All the rights of the songs are held by the musicians. The show notes, which you can find on the Five Songs Set website, contain links to all the bands and songs in this podcast, as well as lots of additional information. I'd like to thank Alexander Petersky for the theme music. If you would like to let me know what you think about the podcast, drop me an email at fivesongset at gmail.com or comment on Facebook. You can subscribe to the podcast by following the instructions on the website or by going to the iTunes store. If you want to get an email about new shows and very occasionally other information, you can sign up on the website or drop me an email. Lastly, we have Casey Jones by Billy Murray and Chorus from 1910. So, what do you know about Casey Jones? If someone had asked me, I would have been able to say that it is definitely the name of a song about an engineer by the Grateful Dead. It turns out that Casey Jones was a real person, and, like the wreck of the old 97, the songs about him commemorate a real train wreck. The Wikipedia page about him is really long and involved. Basically, Casey Jones was an engineer. By 1900, according to Wikipedia, he was doing the passenger run between Memphis and Canton, Mississippi. This was one link of a four-train run between Chicago, Illinois, and New Orleans, Louisiana, the so-called cannonball passenger run. Cannonball was a contemporary term applied to fast mail and fast passenger trains of those days, but it was actually a generic term, much like we would use the word rocket today. On April 30th, in the wee hours of the morning, Jones was given a train that was running 95 minutes late. He and his fireman, Sim Webb, left Memphis, determined to make up the lost time. And, long story short, they did. Was Jones reckless? Well, it sounds like he had gotten in trouble for not following rules previously. Although it also sounds like he wasn't some, like, wild man who was going to take crazy risks. However, in Vaughan, Mississippi, there were trains on the tracks over which Jones needed to pass. So, there's a big curve that blocks Jones's view as they're heading into Vaughan. But Webb has a better view and warns Jones that there's something on the main line. Jones yells for him to jump. Again, quoting from Wikipedia, Jones reversed the throttle and slams the air brakes into emergency stop. But the engine, old 382, quickly plowed through a wooden caboose, a carload of hay, another of corn, and halfway through a cart of timber before leaving the track. He had amazingly reduced his speed from about 75 miles per hour to about 35 when he impacted with a deafening crunch of steel against steel and splintering wood. Because Jones stayed on board to slow the train, he no doubt saved the passengers from serious injury and death. Jones himself was the only fatality of the collision. His watch stopped at the time of impact, 3.52 a.m. on April 30th, 1900. Now the controversy. The Illinois Central Railroad said that there was a flagman who warned Jones about the train on the main line and that Jones ignored the signal. Webb, in the report, says that there was a signal, but it seems like the signal might have been given later than it should have been. Later, Webb said that there was no flagman at all. Also, there was some confusion about whether Jones and Webb had been given enough time to rest between this last run and their previous one. Was it operator error? Was the flagman out of position or missing? Or was the railroad just covering for itself? You decide.
Just as a little warning for listeners, I'm going to let you know that this version of the song does not accurately represent the facts of the case, and has sort of some unpleasant things to say about Casey Jones's wife. However, it's still really interesting to hear it, so there you go. Here is Casey Jones by Billy Murray and Chorus. If you want to hear a story about a brave engineer, Casey Jones was the roundest name. On a six-eight wheeler, boys, he won his fame. The caller called Casey at a half past four, kissed his wife at the station door, mounted to the cabin with his orders in his hand, and he took his farewell trip to that promised land. Casey Jones mounted to the cabin, Casey Jones with his orders in his hand. Casey Jones mounted to the cabin, and he took his farewell trip to that promised land. Put your head out the window, watch them drivers roll. I'll run her till she leaves the rail, cause I'm eight hours late with that western mail. He looked at his watch and the watch was slow. He looked at the water and the water was low. He turned to the fireman and he said, We're going to reach Frisco, but we'll all be dead. Can they be? 
He said the Southern Pacific and the Santa Fe. Mrs. Jones sat on her bed a sign. Just received a message that Katie was dying. Said go to bed, children, and hush your crying. Cause you got another papa on the Salt Lake line. Mrs. Casey Jones. Got another papa. Mrs. Casey Jones. On the Salt Lake line, Mrs. Casey Jones. Until next time, this is Felicia signing off from St. Petersburg in Russia. Five, six, six.